The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host. I'm also the Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary and I have with me in the studio Dr. Joseph A. Pipa Jr., President of the seminary. Dr. Pipa, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Zach. It is always good to join you. <laughs> Our uh, monthly segment of Faith and Practice is what is on the docket today, and those of you who have been listening for a long time are very well familiar with it, as this is our 45th installment of Faith and Practice. Those of you who are new to the program, this is a monthly segment where I welcome Dr. Piper into the studio, and he takes questions from our listenership and answers them, giving biblical, solid uh, reformed answers to the questions that are posed to us, and hopefully for the, the benefit of the church and of our listeners. Dr. Piper, would you open us in a word of prayer, and then I will share some announcements. Okay, Zach, thank you. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we bless and adore you, for you indeed are great. We look around us and we marvel at the beauty of spring, and we recognize that an infinite spirit who must be so beautiful could design, create, and sustain such a beautiful creation. That the beauty, that it's your beauty, Lord, surpasses all that we can see or imagine. We pray that you will enable us, even through the lenses of spring, to behold the beauty of our God. And above all, in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, the beauty of a God who loves sinners and saved us. We thank you for a privilege of having this hour together. We ask that you will bless the questions and answers, Lord, to the profit of all who will listen. Give us wisdom and humility as we deal with the questions, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We just had our Spring Theology Conference this past month in March, and I want to thank all of those who are listening uh, who also attended the conference. It was and by our estimations, we were discussing this in a meeting today, one of our most successful conferences. The teaching was excellent. The preaching uh, was a great blessing to us, but also the fellowship with so many people from eight different countries around the world. And what was it, 22 different states? Not, well, yeah, and nine different denominations or something. 26 states and not 20 denominations, 20-something denominations. Yeah, it was 20-something states, 20-something denominations, eight, eight countries. Eight countries. So it was just a blessed time together. Um, if you did attend, we thank you, and we hope that you will consider attending next year as we recognize not only 400 years of the Canons of Dort and the Doctrines of Grace, but also 20 years of the Greenville Spring Theology Conference. It's our anniversary next year, so we're very excited about that. Some upcoming events that I want to put on your radar, whether or not you attended the conference last month. Uh, the first one is our commencement ceremony. The class of 2018 of Greenville Seminary will be graduating on Friday, May 18th at Mitchell Road Presbyterian Church here in Greenville, and we are expecting a class size of about 11 people. That's nine MDiv students, a THM candidate, and then also an MAR student. And we are thrilled uh, to uh, be sending them off while also it is always a bittersweet thing to say goodbye to students. 
And we also have a, a few things going on this summer. If you're going to be at the PCA General Assembly or the OPC-URCNA Joint Assembly or even the ARP General Assembly, keep a lookout for us. Um, I will be at the PCA and the ARP uh, synods or assemblies, and Dr. Piper will also be at the PCA Assembly, and we will have Dr. Curto representing us at the OPC uh, URCNA Joint Assembly. And if you're in the RCUS, please uh, keep a lookout for Travis Grassmid, who will be representing us there in Minneapolis. Um, also, I will be traveling around to a number of Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals events, and so I will have a booth there, and I invite you to come and say hello to me. Last time I was in Philadelphia at the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology, I was pleased to have a number of listeners approach the booth and and thank the seminary, or thank me on behalf of the seminary, for the work of the school, and particularly of the podcast and our work of training pastors, preachers, and churchmen. So we will be in Philadelphia. We'll have representatives in Grand Rapids. I'll also be going down to the Pensacola Theological Institute, where one of our graduates, the Dr. Gabe Floor, will be presenting. And we'll also have a contingent of students at the Banner of Truth conference uh, in late May. So there's a lot of opportunities to engage and interact with us. Please make yourself known. Do not be shy. Do not be bashful. Finally, some events here at the seminary later on in the summer are two summer classes. We have our summer institute, which this year will be handling pastoral family counseling. It will be taught or led by Dr. Kevin Backus and Dr. George (laughs) Scipione, and it will be an intensive uh, four days or five days four and a half days, I guess, on issues germane to family counseling from the pastor's perspective, from a biblical counseling perspective. So um, certainly some crises, like how to walk with a couple uh, through divorce or or through um, a death in the family or, or something of that nature, but also uh, you'll be equipped to walk with um, couples and families through wonderful things like the birth of a child or, or premarital counseling or things of that nature. We also have our annual Southern Presbyterianism class taught by Dr. Nick Wilborn. So the Summer Institute for pastoral counseling will be July 23rd through 27th, and Dr. Wilborn's course will be August 6th through 10th. Mark your calendars for these things and check in frequently on our website and social media presence. We'll also be sending out emails. If you're not on our email list already, please send an email to info at gpts.edu, and we would be happy to add you if you're interested in receiving news and updates from us. Dr. Wilborn's uh, class is also a great family vacation. He takes the class down to Columbia, South Carolina, and then Charleston, uh, where you have some wonderful historical sites with uh, lectures at many of these sites, but also uh, good food, great fellowship. We just took some out-of-town friends on that little tour to Columbia and Charleston uh, after the conference, and just it was so refreshing. They have written back, particularly the friends from South Africa, how much they were ministered to by that as well. So... That's a great course. It's not annually, Zach. It's about every second or third year, but it's a really good course. It is. Thank you, Dr. Piper. With that, we will dive into our um, first question from Lucas Salgado of Recife, Brazil. 
And this is what Lucas asks. I have an annual Bible reading plan that I work through every year. However, I always struggle during the Old Testament readings about genealogy and ceremonial laws, size of the temple, how the sacrifices should be made, and so on. I do not skip these texts, but at the same time, I can't seem to learn much from them. So my question is, is there a better way of reading genealogy in these Old Covenant texts that deal specifically with the ceremonial law? How can I apply genealogies to my life? And how can I study texts that detail the size of the temple, for example? Can I skip such passages? Well, Lucas, you have put your finger on a problem that I think most of us have who try to read through the Bible annually, and I appreciate your asking uh, the question. Let's start with the end. No, don't skip them. Uh, remember that all Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable. All Scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. So the first thing I recommend is every Christian ought to ha- have a uh, full six-volume set of Matthew Henry. And so when you get into these sections, you maybe don't look up you know, the whole section, but take a paragraph and look it up in Matthew Henry. Uh, most of his chapters aren't that long anyway, but it's, he's very useful. He's very balanced between exegesis and Christ-centeredness as well as application. So that would be the first thing. Next thing is you need to get Dr. Morales' book on Leviticus and uh, read that because that's going to fill in the most difficult part of the Pentateuch for you. <clears throat> And then recognize that in the genealogies, you learn a great deal about God himself. He's a God of the covenant. He's faithful. He has developed the covenant genealogies according to his promise. He also cares about people. And this shows that he uh, knows and remembers. And so if he cares about them, he cares about you. And then I recommend... Uh, using the New American Standard Bible because it has the best cross-reference system. And so when you have a cross-reference, uh, look it up. Um, just take, for example, you get to David's 30 Mighty Men, and there you find, well, Uriah the Hittite was one of David's premier soldiers. And then you see all the greater heinousness of David's sin, and that is very humbling. Or the gene- our genealogy in Chronicles will start talking about this was the city of the scribes. Or a few years ago, uh, Jabez's prayer was made popular through a very erroneous book. But you read about Jabez, and that's profitable. So in the genealogies, look up names, <clears throat> pay attention to the cross-references when there is a relationship, and remember that God does care about people, and that God has a book of life and that every one whom he's chosen in Christ is in that book of life. There's also the registry of the church. This is a reminder that uh, church membership is important. We learn this from the Old Testament, not just the New Testament, and that these people were all in the registry of the Old Covenant Church. So uh, don't worry about getting anything out of the whole chapter. Uh, use cross-references, use Matthew Henry, get Dr. Morales' book on Leviticus. You can get it here through the seminary. And then pray over the text. The Spirit is the one who illumines our understanding. He will give you a a nugget, a tidbit, uh, out of that chapter if you seek it from him using those means. That is good advice. 
and it's good advice for a great question. And like Dr. Pipe has said, it's something we all struggle with. And that is why books like Dr. Morales's are so helpful to us because they, they make those connections that we might not be able to make on our own. Another little pamphlet worth recommending to you is published by Reformation Heritage Books in the Cultivating Biblical Godliness series edited by Dr. McGraw and Dr. Joel Beakey. And it's a book written by one of our conference speakers from this last year. Dr. Barrett of Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary has a short treatment answering that question, how can I read the Old Testament um, in a way that maximizes the benefit of it to my spiritual life? So I recommend that to you as well. You can find that um, at Reformation Heritage Books' website or just Google Barrett reading the Old Testament, and I'm sure it would come up. And that, again, is in the Cultivating Biblical Godliness series. Our next question comes from... You know, your wife asked me this question yesterday, didn't she? Seems to me that... She did. Yeah. Yeah, we we were having this conversation yesterday. The Pipers had us over to their home. Uh, I wasn't going to brag on him, but now I will. They're very hospitable. They had us over to their home for dinner after church, and we this came up. Uh, how do we, you know, how do each of us read the Bible through every year? And Mrs. Piper referenced Matthew Henry and the help that it is to her, and my wife asked Dr. Piper about reading the Old Testament as well, particularly these challenging passages. Our next question comes from Chad Warner of Greenville, South Carolina, and I just want to give a special word of thanks to Chad and to uh, Jeremy Holland from Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church and Dallas Beasley of Second Presbyterian Church and the Easter Day family of Covenant Community Orthodox Presbyterian Church. These were some faithful volunteers who came and, and put in some sweat equity here at the seminary putting down mulch on our, on our flower beds with us. We had a few students, but really more even more uh, volunteers from the surrounding churches. We're so thankful for you all and for those congregations. Um, and Chad is one of those volunteers. Thank you, Chad. He asks, how should we approach a fellow believer who doesn't keep the Lord's day holy? Do you have advice on speaking the truth in love in this situation? And did you want to take this yeah, one with my together. question as mm-hmm. well? And this pairs nicely with a question that I posed. How can we best develop a biblical instinct for when to, quote, speak up, end quote, against some perceived or actual deviation from the truth in either the faith or the practice of someone in our life? Put another way, what principles should I follow when considering whether or not to correct someone who has said or done something that I think is wrong or even incorrect? Yes, Zach, the questions do dovetail quite well. And I actually had another person approach me at church, Woodruff Road, Sunday night. A very similar question about uh, how do you respond in the situation about the Sabbath. So um, first place, Chad, I'm so thankful that you and others are thinking about the beauty and glory of the Lord's Day and trying to work these things out practically. Um, some basic questions, uh, principles to keep in mind as we weave these two questions together. One is that we, uh, Spurgeon says, grace doesn't do away with manners. Uh, we treat other people as we want to be treated ourselves. We should always treat them with respect uh, and gentleness and forbearance. Unless the sin is a wholesale, just deliberate in your face um, attack on God and righteousness are public issues. So Paul's case with Peter, you know, he couldn't hold back because the gospel was at stake. And 
we have to have wisdom to know when it's the gospel at stake and when it is, yes, a matter of holiness, but uh, such things as, do I have the right to speak to this person at this point? Um, and uh, is this going to do good if I do this in public? <clears throat> and then Proverbs, uh, do not answer a fool according to his folly, answer a fool according to his folly, which in itself makes us ponder how do we respond to fools? Well, not in the way that they act, but uh, in a way that will not be foolish, but will, in the proper time, expose them in their folly. So we have to develop these principles, as Zach puts the question. <clears throat> I think one is, do I know this person well enough? So if it's a person at the gym and they watched the Super Bowl yesterday, I'm not going to rebuke them. They might not even be a professing Christian, even if they are a professing Christian. But what I will use the opportunity to say was, you know, I don't watch sports on Sunday. You can weave that into the, congregation, into the conversation. If they follow up on it, then that's good. If they don't, you've still borne testimony. A few years ago, I walked into the gym after the Super Bowl game, and a guy actually said to me, he said, tell me, did you watch the Super Bowl yesterday? He said, no, he said, I know you don't watch sports on Sunday, but did you watch the Super Bowl? And I said, no, I didn't. He said, I didn't think you would. Now, we hadn't had that many conversations, but here's a guy, actually, if I remember correctly, claimed to be an atheist, but here's a guy that simply because of regular little simple conversations, and they're easier to have at church than they are actually in public, just <clears throat> I did this with all of this happy Easter stuff that was going on, you know, and try if I know the person, or I know the person professing Christian, I can, you know, encourage them about the resurrection. If I don't, I can say, well, w you know, what do you mean? You wish me happy Easter. What does that mean? Uh, so, questions are always a good way uh, to interact with people, even if we don't know them that well. But if you've earned the right to speak to someone, <clears throat> then I think that's the the most important thing, uh, and then do it gently, not in a way that would embarrass them um, in private. If it's, if it's not a gross public sin, then uh, you pull them aside and you say, you know, you, you maybe haven't thought about this before, but let me just encourage you to think about um, doing that on Sunday afternoon or talking that way or whatever. Um, same if you rebuke a person for sin. You know, you approach it a bit more tentatively. I might be wrong, but it appears to me that, you know, this thing that you did was a sin, and I'd like you to think about it. We've got to remember that blessed are the wounds of a friend. And it's the wise person who can take uh, rebuke and instruction, and the fool doesn't. So if, you, if this person bristles, then you know to back off, not continue, and not do it again. Don't cast furl before swine, and don't um, answer a fool according to his folly. So with respect to the Lord's Day, now we're talking, Chad, about a fellow believer, uh, and we'll say this is someone that uh, uh, you've got some kind of friendship with. Um, I think I actually start by, again, asking questions. You just can't go wrong asking questions, you know. Uh, have you thought about how that action relates to the fourth commandment. Are, are you aware of what our confession says about, about the Lord's Day? 
and try to engage them from from that angle. Other times it's going to be you know they know better. And this needs to be in private. You know, just let me encourage you that um, not to do those things. Think about the, the positives that God's given us in his day, that you can prepare for worship, you can go home, you can think about the sermon, you have time to read books or an article or, or time to pray or to be with your children and talk about spiritual things, times you don't have uh, during the week, time to get to know God better and to lead your children into this relationship. You get to go back to church on a Sunday night. And then the same thing again. You get to uh, <clears throat> reflect on the sermon. And so approach it positively and then give them a copy of, of my book or Dr. McGraw's book uh, if they're willing to uh, to uh, to follow up and, and read that. But if it's a Christian, a fellow believer, it's a friend, don't, you don't need to be afraid to talk. I think that's part of our problem today, that, that we're not, we don't have enough public conversation uh, about these things. It's a difficult subject approach with a lot of folks, especially if, um, if it's somebody that you know is not going to respond positively to a question like, have you thought about how this you know, computes with the fourth commandment or, or how it falls in line with it. I mean, I know I have, I have a number of dear friends who, if I were to say something like that, they'd say, well, Jesus died. So I don't have to worry about keeping the commandments, Zach. Uh, of course you can follow that down a whole, a whole nother train of conversation about holiness and, and righteousness. And do they apply that to the other, the other nine commandments contained? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for the question, Chad. Uh, appreciate that we were both on the same wavelength. You know, Dr. Piper, we actually received some questions here live um, that oh, good. I th- think we can tackle before we dive into our Very good. Our I like live questions. Series. This one comes from William Tejeda, and he asks, At what point do we stop reading things from men with differing theological views, such as two-kingdom thought, sonship theology, slash hypergrace movement, republicationism, etc.? Is it better to steer clear of such authors, um, period, or to gain edification from works that do not specifically address these or other issues? Thank you, William. Good to hear from you. Uh, I think it, a lot depends on your calling. I, I don't recommend to the, uh, uh, to the regular Christian in the pew uh, to read a, a controversial book, say, on Republication or Two Kingdom. If it's, uh, if it's not, that's a difference in a book that I think is edifying and has some error in it. You know, Calvin said, affirm truth wherever you find it. And so... <clears throat> There are books that might have error that I think are profitable. But if it's merely a matter, this is setting forth a system that is contrary to what I think is the biblical and reform system, then I don't encourage the person, uh, let's use the, the idiom in the pew, to read that book. Some of us have to read those books because uh, we have to be able to then help those who we're teaching and pastoring to uh, uh, navigate these waters. And I want my students to read these books because I want them to be able then to do the same thing and also in their Presbyterian exam to be able to be knowledgeable about the positions that we don't hold to and answer those exegetically as well as knowledgeable about the positions we hold. That's a goal we have at Greenville Seminary. But no, I... uh, 
Life's too short to read bad books. There's other things it's too short about, too, but maybe we won't say those on the air. But anyway, the old commercial was life's too short to drink bad beer. But life's too short to read bad books. And uh, so we only have, I mean, most of us have so much reading time, and it's not a great amount of time. And so, you know, to read uh, J.C. Ryle on holiness would be a lot better than reading Republication. That's good advice. <laughs> Both ways. I think it'd be I think it'd be more enjoyable to read Ryle than, than Klein anyway, though. <laughs> Maybe some of our listeners would disagree with me. Um, thank you for the question, uh, William. Our n- another question came in from online from Lowell Ivy, uh, somewhat related to, to William's question. Should an elder be unwilling to let a man be put before the congregation for election to church office if that man holds to a non-literal approach to the creation days? Should an elder not vote for a candidate for gospel ministry if that man holds to one of the alternative views on creation allowed by the OPC and the PCA? Boy, Lowell, you know how to toss grenades into the room, don't you? That's a very important question. Um, The way I deal with it in class, theoretically, let's put it this way. Uh, Let's take the ministerial candidate because because that's, for me, a bit easier question. The ministerial candidate has to be able to do two things well. One is he has to be able to give the traditional, the exegetical basis of the traditional view. Then he has to be able succinctly and intelligibly to explain his alternate view and defend it well. Then there's certain non-negotiables. He can say, I don't know that the chapters chronologically uh, demands chronology, but I believe in the eight fiat acts as immediate acts of creation. And so at that point, he's basically saying, I don't know about the chronology or the absolute length of a day, but I do believe when the Bible says, and God said there was, and it was so, that these were immediate acts. Now, if a man can do those things and then agree not to teach his position, uh, I might vote for him in the Presbytery. Might vote. Well, a lot depends on how he handles himself. Okay. So in the local church, it's similar. I I wouldn't expect uh, a ruling elder candidate to be as uh, articulate, but he has to be able to explain the view and why he holds it. And he has to be able to explain what I think is the biblical, the confessional reform view. Uh, and he has to assert that God did these things by the word of his power, uh, and they were immediate acts of creation. Uh, and then I would think agree not to teach these views in the congregation publicly or privately. But I have no difficulty saying, particularly in the church, where it's even, I think, more important, that a ruling elder candidate uh, ought to hold to uh, the catechisms. God made all things by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. One more question from online. This is from a friend of mine from college, John Caulfield who of Westchester, Pennsylvania. He asks, is Zach Groff difficult to work with? Well, you know him probably as well as I do. No, he's not. Zach is a bit of a Yankee, but uh, he I love Zach. He's like a son. 
He is gifted by God. He's going to be a great pastor one day, but right now he's a great director for advancement. Did you pay him to ask this question? I did not, <laughs> no, but he is he is quite snarky, so made me chuckle when I saw that come through. No, really, you know, we're, we're blessed here. We all are sinners, and uh, I tell staff, I've told Zach, if I do something to, you know, if I speak impatiently or something, whatever, just tell me, you know, and uh, we don't bear grudges against one another. And if, if I think Zach overstepped himself in his uh, wonderful confidence, uh, I'll say, Zach, maybe you slow down a bit. No, we work well together. Uh, I respect Zach. I respect his ideas. And uh, we're just blessed. I mean, the whole staff here, we just had our staff meeting today. We do that the first Monday of the month. And we're very blessed, and the, as Zach was telling me today, he said, people of the seminaries don't know how we get done what we get done. Uh, we are a little small uh, uh, ragtag band of Reformed pilgrims that uh, God has just blessed. He has definitely blessed us, and he has blessed me in allowing me to work here with Dr. Piper. And I'm glad you didn't ask me if Dr. Piper is difficult to work with. Um, I would have given much the same answer, I'm sure. Yeah, if you want your job. <laughs> Thus, there you go. Um, all right, great. Thank you, John, for the laugh and, and for the, the, the tongue-in-cheek question there. Show forth our humanity a little bit. The next question is going to kick off three related questions, um, and not all three of them are anonymous. Just this first one is anonymous. Does the Westminster Confession of Faith's teaching on the regulative principle of worship in 21.1 require that we hold to exclusive psalmody based on 21.5, which reads, quote, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, end quote. In other words, if I believe that songs other than canonical psalms are acceptable to God in public worship, do logic and integrity require me to take exception to the Westminster Standards? Very good question, Anonymous from Simpsonville. No, Surely logic and integrity doesn't require that because it wouldn't be an exception. The question actually enables me to get into something that is very important. Most of you would understand, but maybe not. At Greenville Seminary, we call ourselves full subscriptionists. And what full subscription means is that we hold to all the doctrines as they are set forth in the Westminster Standards. But uh, that does not commit us to every exegetical uh, position of the standards are some minor expression of that doctrine. <clears throat> so, for example, some people would think textually, because it's not in some of the text, and thus not, say, in the ESV, that the, the doxology at the end of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew was not in the text. It's true, but it's not in the text. So, in the catechism, when it... Uh, expounds the doxology, then this person would say, uh, I scruple that exegetical uh, part. And so the scruple is, I believe the doctrine, I believe the Lord's Prayer. I think that exegetically this is not part of the Lord's Prayer. And so there are various expressions uh, in the standards that people would scruple a particular way it is being said, not the doctrine itself. So we apply that to the regulative principle of worship. Uh, we all must believe that we uh, 
may and must do in worship the things that God reveals to us by explicit revelation or good and necessary inference. But um, if the confession teaches that we are to sing psalms exclusively, we would scruple that and say exegetically, I believe the Bible requires me to sing a hymn. Now, that's you can't say I don't. You know, I, I want to sing hymns. You must be convinced, because then you're holding to the principle that you're only doing what the Bible reveals. And so exegetically, I will differ with the standards at this point. I believe the Bible requires me to sing hymns. But historically, uh, there is some discussion, and actually I've been trying to do some research on this, <clears throat> that the, it was not the intention of the Westminster Divines to demand exclusive psalmody. They expressed it this way because there would be those at the assembly that believed in exclusive psalmody, and there would be those that believed in what we call inclusive psalmody. You must use psalms. And so they expressed it in this way uh, that, yes, we must sing psalms, but uh, they didn't lock us in. So what I say to the Presbytery is if the standards require me to sing psalms exclusively, I scruple that. It's a minor exception, an exegetical exception. Uh, but I'm not sure the standards commit me to that position. <clears throat> so um, that's uh, that's my way of dealing with that. And so even if it is, quote, an exception, it's a minor exception that we would call a scruple. It's not a doctrinal exception, but an applicatory exception. When I first came here to Greenville in my role as Director of Advancement and Admissions, one of the first projects I took on was putting together a little book of uh, abridged articles or just republished articles written by our faculty. And one of the articles in there is on confessional subscription. It's by Dr. Smith. And it's it's really just an edited down excerpt from his little booklet, uh, which traces a, a brief history of confessional subscription in American Presbyterianism. And I was surprised that I, I hadn't even thought about this distinction between a doctrinal exception and an exegetical scruple. But Dr. Smith lays that out pretty clearly. And in fact, he might even have been uh, a bit uh, looser on it. Well, he was definitely looser on it than I expected him to be. He basically said, it's not an exception unless you take exception to the doctrine that the that the language is trying to uh, to represent. And that's consistent with the standards that say that the Scripture alone is the final rule of faith and practice, and that no creed is itself um, infallible. This is important for us who do take seriously uh, subscription and confessional subscription because we will get attacked all the time for putting up um, a, a super canon over above the scriptures. And it's just not true. I mean, if you read our standards, it, it's like Dr. Piper said, it guards us from doing that just, you know, on the basis of them alone. But thank you for the question, Anonymous. This, this again, leads into a, a deeper discussion of psalm singing and ex specific, specifically exclusive psalmody. The next follow-up question comes from Paul Bart of Houston, Texas, who asks, what should someone convicted of exclusive psalmody do if he goes to a church that also sings hymns? He might have meant convinced of exclusive psalmody. Should he stand silently, remain seated, we don't want to cause a ruckus, but we can't participate in good conscience. What is Dr. Piper's advice? Thank you, Paul. It's nice to hear from you. Uh, my advice is read my article and listen to my lecture against exclusive psalmody. 
But uh, if you're still unconvinced at that point, um, it's a very important question. We we are going to find ourselves at times in churches that are less consistent uh, with some of our practices. So, for example, I'm a Presbyterian. If I lived uh, in a city where there was uh, no good Reformed Presbyterian church, but a good uh, Calvinistic Baptist church, that's probably where I would go, Uh, which would mean there'd be certain practices there that uh, I would uh, take exception to, although I would not absent myself from those. So if they had a immersed baptism by immersion, I would, that was a regular state of service of the church, then I would be there. <clears throat> now, with respect to what we sing, I think the appropriate thing to do is to stand with the hymn book open and look at the words and, yes, read them. You can pray them as well, can't you? Um, as long as they're truthful, but not sing them. Now, I know some exclusive psalmists that actually are singing a psalm, not out loud, but mouthing a psalm, uh, why the others are singing. I think that is really unfortunate and would not recommend that. But, uh, you know, when you join the church, you need to let the elders know this is your position and you will not in any way uh, seek to undermine the church or to be disruptive. But standing at the congregation stands is very important. Open the hymn book. Follow the words. You're not violating your principle to do that. It's only the singing of the words that uh, violates um, your principle. So uh, that's how I would would do that. And <clears throat> I w- I've had people in my congregations that was their position, and I think that works fine. I know we have a number of exclusive psalm singers who listen to the podcast, and we invite follow-ups to, to that particular question to Dr. Pipe's answer. You have one right now, huh? Well, the next one's not from an exclusive psalm singer. This is from Christian Rogers of Lake Forest, California, and he just the opposite. <laughs> he gives another uh, another uh, wrinkle in the Presbyterian fabric, so to speak. So, those of you who are not familiar with Presbyterianism, you have uh, Presbyterians that sing psalms and hymns. You have Presbyterians that only sing psalms, and then in a peripheral or related uh, issue in terms of talking about worship, we also have Presbyterians who recognize certain holidays and then Presbyterians who do not. And Christian is one of those who do not recognize certain holidays that are popular in American evangelicalism, and in fact, in, in popish uh, contexts around the world. And Christian asks, for those of us who do sing hymns as well as psalms, but don't want to participate in the traditional Holidays, this would be Christmas, Easter, things like that. How should we respond to, say, Christmas carols and other holiday themed hymns woven into the liturgies used during those seasons? Do we sing, stand silently, remain seated? What do we do? I'm, I'm one of those that do not participate in traditional holidays. I also am one of those who teaches his students what I learned from Martin Lloyd Jones, and that is it's foolish. Uh, the two times a year people come to church thinking about a subject matter not to preach on it. So I'm going to preach on the Incarnation, uh, the Sunday nearest what people call Christmas, and I'm going to preach on the Resurrection. At least we actually know the date of the Resurrection, 
often emphasize that every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection. But I'm going to preach that sermon because that's what people have come attuned, and they're going to get more out of it. Now, because of my view of preaching uh, and and organized, integrated worship, then I'm going to pick psalms and hymns that match those themes. And so I would expect you to sing them. Now, I also pick those psalms and hymns other times of the year. So that's the first problem. The churches that only sing those, as long as they're... As long as they're biblically valid, you should sing them, even if you don't agree with the season, if it's truth. And then encourage the pastor to sing them more often. <clears throat> but we have to pay attention particularly to the, quote, Christmas carols. And a good, I would say, I've not done this statistically, let's just say 50% of the Christmas carols in uh, most Presbyterian hymn books, say New Trinity Hymnal, probably have error in them are so blatantly sentimental that I don't sing them or there'll be verses that I don't sing but we're not to stand out in corporate worship and so there's other hymns I don't sing either it's not just these if there's a bad verse I won't sing it if it's other verses are good then I'll, I'll sing them but I, I just don't sing on that but you know my wife might recognize I'm not singing at that point but so stand Sing the words that you can sing as long as they're true. And if they're not true, don't sing them, but don't stand out. Now, this is only slightly related to what I'm about to say, but if if you're listening and you thought, if you're thinking, man, this guy, he's pretty strict. Listen to him, only singing certain songs, not others, certain you know uh, verses, not others. Uh, I I can I can testify to this. I went to a dinner with Dr. Piper one time, a big uh, evangelical parachurch ministry, very well known. I won't name it, and they sang a Chris Tomlin song, and Dr. Piper did sing it. He sang the Chris Tomlin song. Of course, about the third or fourth time it repeated the the one set of lyrics. <laughs> He points the second time it repeated the one set of lyrics. He stopped singing, <laughs> but he did sing the but song. But that was not a worship service. No, it was not. It no, was a so. dinner, and they happened to include some corporate singing for yeah. for whatever reason. It was it was a nice time, good folks. And it's a we proper prepared church organization, by the way. It is. It is. It's not seeking yeah. to replace a church. It right. is seeking legitimately to come alongside of the church, and it is one that, that I encourage people to work with. Yes, exactly. So thank you, Christian, and thank you, Paul, and thank and either you, one Anonymous. of you. Please follow up. The important thing, remember, it's corporate worship. We don't want to stand out, and so if the congregation is standing, we should stand if we're physically able to do so, and just don't. Uh, so I mean, there's going to be psalms, uh, hymns that I'm not going to sing, uh, <clears throat> and that reminds all of us to sing with understanding. So it's not so much the season of the year, although those are probably the worst, uh, in, in terms of a set of hymns that are in the uh, New Trinity Hymnal, but um, whatever the hymn is, if it's if it's got the whole hymn is erroneous, you know, or a verse is erroneous, then just remain silent. Christian says online, wise answer there, solid points. Chew the fruit, spit out the seeds. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Smiley face. Thank you for listening, Christian, all the way out there in California. Yeah, where it's only noon 15. He might be on his lunch, lunch break. break yeah. huh? I'm glad you're listening live. We want more live listeners. We do. 
Dr. Pipe is always on me about advertising. In fact, I, I want to start more. doing a, a video live. We could. I do want to. We could. I, yeah. I put it in the budget to get but a nice Russ camera. Russ can do it. We can do it, right? Russ. Rush. Oh, Rush. You know who Rush is, don't you? Oh, what? The the pundit? Limbaugh. Limbaugh. Yeah. Yeah. Got a funny story about that. My wife's uh, brothers asked her grandfather one time, you know, what what in the world does this guy do for a living? Why is he on the radio? And um, and I answered. I said, oh, well, it's he gets paid to talk. And then Jocelyn's grandfather said, oh, if Grammy got paid to talk, we'd be millionaires. <laughs> <laughs> It's just always terrible. Okay. Our next question comes from Eduardo Barbicosta of Taylor's, South Carolina. Originally, he's from Brazil. He's one of our students here. Hello, Eduardo. He asks, Dr. Piper, what is your take on the popular characterization of preaching that it is, quote, counseling from the pulpit? And we believe he got this phrase from originally Fosdick, but then it was adapted by Adams. Thank you, Eduardo. I don't like the phrase because I think it loses the purpose of preaching, which is uh, to expound the truth of God's Word in order to persuade the hearers to specific action. And so the sermon should always instruct in Scripture, but the preacher needs to have goal or goals in mind. What does he want the sermon to do in life of people? And so it doesn't take the place of the counseling room, but applicatory preaching is going to do two things for the pastor. In the long run, it will create a lot more immediate counseling follow-up. No, that's the short run. In the long run, it's going to reduce counseling because you are dealing with people's minds, hearts, that's the soul, the mind, the heart, and the will, from the pulpit with the Scripture authority. They'll be convicted. They'll come to you. They're going to be motivated to seek pastoral help and the role of the Spirit in changing the way they think or behave in a certain way. But as the Spirit blesses preaching down the road then, um, this man's a better husband, this woman's a better wife, they're better parents, they're better children, they've got a different view of truth or or whatever. So... uh, Preaching will have an element of counseling if it's applicatory. Uh, so Paul says, preach the word in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And that word exhort is both to speak words of encouragement and admonition. So in that way, we're authoritatively telling people what Christ wants them to do and how he wants them to think. But there's basically the authority of Kerix of the preacher, and our theology is that when the lawfully ordained man preaches the word of God, Christ is speaking with a living voice. That does not happen in the counseling room. There is a distinction. And, and as, you, as we learn here at, at Greenville Seminary in our homiletics classes and our other practical theology classes, preaching is the hub from which the rest of the ministry of the church flows out right? Um, And that includes counseling. Counseling obviously is dependent upon faithful preaching, but it, you know, it cannot supplant faithful preaching, even if it's done in a, in a public, uh, very applicatory way. Which leads to the next question. Boy, these have providentially been 
really tied together well. Mm-hmm. Next question comes from Joshua Morrison, another student of ours. He's uh, phoning in from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and he asks, how does a pastor protect his integrity and his marriage and still counsel women in an age where even an unfounded accusation can ruin a ministry, destroy a church, and utterly wreck a man's reputation and credibility? How true that is. We just read last week of another very famous evangelical leader going down to sexual immorality. Uh, Well, the first place is to be well aware of the age in which we live. And and I'm glad you asked the question the way you did, Josh, because there's two problems. There's the one of temptation where a man can actually um, seduce or be seduced or get involved in a relationship. But there's also an age of scurrilous, slanderous accusation. And as I was telling one young preacher more fairly recently, I mean, there are going to be women or men who hate you or hate the truth enough that they will make up a lie about you to destroy you or destroy the church. So we have to be aware now of both of these issues. So counseling of a woman should always be done uh, in a public place. Uh If it's in your office at the church or at home, there needs to be uh, another person in the next room. Uh, I encourage a glass uh, door. Even here at the seminary, uh, my office, Zach's office, has a glass uh, aperture. People can look into the office from the outside. Are all the offices that way, aren't they? Yeah. All of the offices are that way. Each faculty office, right. uh, all of the classrooms have yeah. and, little and, windows and as well. And the classrooms as well. Um, then um, your wife, if you're married, should always know, I've got an appointment with so-and-so at uh, this time as well. So if it's your, somebody at the church is there, or if it's a visit, this is how this came up. I was teaching a leadership conference last weekend in Michigan, and on pastoral visitation, then uh, I always had an elder with me if I went to the home of a single lady. Never go to a home of a single lady by yourself. Now, the one thing I did in Houston, we had a lot of of ladies that were being converted, uh, singles, or husbands had... Um, throwing them off or whatever, uh, I uh, would meet them in a public place for lunch, not going in the same car, but meeting at a restaurant. Again, my wife would know I've got an appointment with Kathleen at 1230 at uh, Jake's uh, restaurant down the street. I should be home by 2. Um, now, I've, I've, I've been thinking about that because of Vice President Pence's uh, standard that he would never have lunch with a woman, a single woman unaccompanied. Uh, <clears throat> I think if it is a business lunch in that way or a counseling lunch, I'm still not uh, afraid of that one, uh, surely not a social uh, a social situation. But th- that's, that's how I dealt with it. And you just, you just guard yourself then in, in those situations and be, be very wise. Something that's worth mentioning here, I read recently in Thomas Brooks is a mute Christian under the smarting rod, and he's, he gives a list of objections that the hypothetical reader might have to his 
his saying with Psalm uh, 39, verse 7, to, to be mute before God's you know, sovereignty, and particularly in affliction, he says, um, where is it? Objection number nine. Oh, but I am falsely accused and sadly reproached. My good name, which should be as dear or dearer to me than my life, is defamed and fly-blown, and things are laid to my charge that I never did, that I never knew. How then can I be silent? How can I hold my peace? I cannot forget the proverb, Oculus et fama non pation turiocus, a man's eye and his good name can bear no jests. And how then can I be mute to see men make jests upon my good name, and every day to see men laid it with all the scorn and contempt imaginable that they may utterly blast it? This is a book obviously written before our time. This is not a problem that has come out of nowhere. It's not unique to our age. Slander and false accusation, though maybe not in the past of, of a particular well, but Zach, lascivious type, has always is, been around. Is that I think you're applying a, uh, a principle too broadly. If it's simply personally, this person, I mean, this happens to me all the time, said, I believe this or I believe that or, or whatever, uh, those are the kind of things that we leave to the Lord. But if it's a matter of the integrity of the ministry or the church, then we, we, first we must be wise to protect ourselves. But if it's, a, if it's a cause of Christ, then I also think, but this wasn't a question about how you deal with slander. It's how do you avoid oh, yeah. slander. No. But I do think that if it's, if it's a matter of, of the integrity of the gospel, that there has to be... Uh, at times, a willingness, yes, to be quiet, but other times there, there has to be a willingness to step forward and uh, assert evidence of integrity. Yeah, and he Not, says there's nothing wrong with that in the book. Stuff like that. But, I just meant he means be silent of murmuring. Don't complain and grumble against the Lord for the afflictions in your life. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for the question, Joshua. Um, I think we have time for one more from one more. Hans Saunders of Waco, Texas. What are the pros and cons of a Traducian anthropology? Does this have any negative bearing on the Adam-Christ parallel in your estimation? We were just talking about this earlier this semester. Yes, I just dealt with this in Man and Sin. There are two views in the understanding of Scripture of how the soul uh, is passed from parents to uh, their children. Uh, and one is called traducianism, and that means that somewhere within the procreative process, as the uh, egg is fertilized, uh, life begins, a soul also is carried over, traduced from the parents or the parent to the child. The other view is called creationism. And that view is, is that God newly creates the soul. So every time that the Lord blesses the act of procreation and <coughs> the um, egg is fertilized and becomes that God instills the soul into uh, that newly fertilized uh, egg. There are uh, implications out of both. And there are some difficulties involved in both. It seems that most uh, Reformed people since the Reformation have held to creationism. Uh, <clears throat> others, a few, uh, Shedd being a primary example, probably Dabney in a more uh, maybe modified way, have held to traditionism. The advantage of traditionism, it does 
show how we all are in Adam uh, and bear then the guilt of Adam's first sin and how we also get personality traits from our parents uh, and how we're born corrupt. The difficulty for some with traditionism is that the soul is being a simple spiritual entity cannot divide uh, and uh, procreate. The advantage of creationism, it answers that problem, but it creates the problem then of unity with Adam. How does our soul become uh, guilty of Adam's sin if it's newly created? We don't think sin resides in the body, and so then how does that happen? Well, I actually have offered my students a hybrid and the hybrid is, is that the soul is made by God from the soul of the parents, probably the father, uh, at least in terms of the sinful, uh, the guilt of Adam's sin. Uh, and, um, and we go back to the creation of Eve for this, is that uh, <clears throat> Eve, to be in Adam, had to participate in him federally. <coughs> and so where did her soul come from? Well, seems that the best answer is that God took Adam's soul and made a soul for Eve. So I take it as basically a tradition view that God, though, works in that process and makes a soul from the soul. Thank you, Dr. Piper. If you're more interested in that, you are welcome to audit uh, creation, man, and sin with us. Of course, It'd be best if you were here in town. They can get that lecture as well. You can also get that lecture. We can provide that to you or make it available. You know, we are in the process of of preparing certain classes for availability on iTunes U and and, uh, post them on there. But we're still a ways away from completing that project, at least with Creation, Man, and Sin, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. Thank you all so much for tuning in. We had a handful of listeners, or a few handfuls of listeners, interacting <laughs> with us uh, throughout, um, about as many as we usually have per month, and so we're thankful for you guys. I'm also thankful to you, Dr. Piper, for joining me. We've had a number of requests to do this like a TV show, but then I'd have to, to dress for TV, not radio, which I, I guess I look presentable. You ever enough. seen Garrison Keillor? No. Before he became disreputable? No. Because, you know, he, he did that radio show, uh, Prairie Home Companion. Mm-hmm. But he, he, would all, he would do it live from a, <coughs> a theater. So they moved the show around. It was always a live radio show. But he had his red sneakers and his uh, casual shirt, and he would walk around, and then he would be te- thrown off a script as he, as he finished a particular Oh, yeah. section of the program. It's fun to watch. That, is, that does sound fun. Well, thank you all, and please join us next month for Faith in Practice number 46. We're looking forward to it. Um, thank you, Dr. Piper. Please submit a follow-up questions, and hey, join us for commencement if you'll be in town on Friday, May 18th at Mitchell Road Presbyterian Church, and that will start at what? seven six six o'clock. 6 o'clock, May 18th, commencement at Mitchell Road PCA in Greenville. Thank you all so much, and God bless. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.